who is the co-author of this incredible book that is called No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work. And I read it in one setting. It was that good. And not to mention beautifully illustrated by Liz Fossley, her co-author. And we'll get into what the book's about, but I really wanted to have Molly on the heartbeat because this topic of emotions and leadership, I think are inextricable for better, for worse. So wanting to hear from, from Molly herself, not only is she an author, but she is an organizational designer at IDEO and has taught at Stanford and room for publications like Fast Company. So, so excited to have you on the heartbeat today, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Cool. Okay, so Molly, I know you've watched a few of these interviews, and the way that they go is I always start off by asking everyone the same question, which is, what's something you wish you would have learned earlier as a leader? So for me, I wish I would have learned how to be a little bit more vulnerable as a leader. I am somebody who tends towards being an under-emoter. So we talk in the book about those people who are over-emoters and under-emoters. And under-emoters tend to be a little bit more reserved. They think before they speak, which is a good thing, but also means that sometimes we can bury our feelings. Over-emoters wear their emotions on their sleeves. They're the people you go to if you want someone to get really excited with you. Uh, but they can also sometimes share emotions and then have regret about sharing those emotions if they aren't fully processed. So knowing this tendency, one of the ways to talk about that people can um, get their teams to trust them is to be a little bit more authentic and vulnerable. And that was something I had to learn as a leader to do. Um, I've led teams and especially with clients to do things like ask for help and to say when I'm overwhelmed and to share some of those emotions that uh, before I would just sort of put deep inside myself. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I, uh, I think it's, first of all, kind of amazing that you know that that's what you are. Because I think a lot of leaders who are listening to this or watching this might have just heard your description of an under-motor and gone, oh, that's kind of me. But that term, under-motor, isn't, I don't know, it's not kind of popular lexicon. So I'm curious for you, how did you find out that that's what you were? Was it in the research as you were doing the book? Was it something that happened much earlier in your career? Did someone tell you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I had never heard those terms before writing the book. And that was something that came up in our research was those terms. And I think um, once I heard the definitions of them, that under one really resonated with me. Because I have heard that in feedback. So the words that are often used to describe me are, you're very professional, you're calm, you're reserved. I, I'm very friendly, but I'm not going to be the person who you're going to come to if you want me to get really excited about something. You're, I'm going to be the person that you come to if you need to calmly talk something through. <laughs> and I will be good for that. And it's not one, it's not right or wrong. You need both in the workplace. And I think once, yeah, as you said, once people hear the descriptions, I think probably if you've gotten feedback over the years, you're able to say which side you are. And of course, there's a spectrum and many people are probably somewhere in the middle. 
my uh, husband is definitely an overloader, and so I have someone who I live with who I, you know, I can go to to get really excited, and I know um, what he's like, so that's my sort of mental model for what that side of it is. Definitely. I can only imagine for folks who do identify as being an under a motor. I mean, this is what I'm thinking as you were saying that I was like, I actually think that's kind of a good thing. Like being calm, being reserved, you know, I'm, I'm going to be presumptuous here and say, perhaps it's helpful in decision making, perhaps it's helpful um, in, in moments of complexity. I mean, what would you say to someone who would argue that that vulnerability of one, either actually leaning into something that you might not naturally be predisposed to, which is emoting more, and two, actually talking about the things you're not good at. I mean, couldn't those things backfire, hypothetically? Absolutely, yeah. So in the book, we write about this idea of being selectively vulnerable. So as a leader, you definitely don't want to be overly vulnerable. Um, Leaders have to think harder and longer than the rest of us about when to show emotion. Because we are all looking for them for what is the right emotional norm in this organization? How much emotion do we show? And so we're studying the way that they display their emotion or don't display their emotion. You do want to have some vulnerability. So we're really good at picking up on fakeness, especially in our leaders. Um, And so if you don't, as a leader, show any emotion, it's really hard to trust that leader. Um, So a great example is, like, let's say something happened in a organization, like there was layoffs or you didn't get around to funding, if you as a leader get up in front of the organization, do not draft a, I'm feeling frustrated or sad as well. People are going to be like, this thing happened and you're a human and you're not sharing how you're feeling about it. So either you're lying about it or you're not having those emotions. And either way, like, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. So you want to share that, but also don't want to share too much because that is where you can seem weak. So leaders who share too many personal stories that can undermine your authority and people can start to question your ability to do your job. So we talk about you have to be vulnerable, but selective about it. You also have to provide a path forward. So to go back to the Mm -hmm. example I gave of the layoff, you have to say, here's how I'm feeling. But I trust that we're going to get through this, and here's the things that I suggest we do in the next six months to get through this. Right. I remember reading this section of the book, and I took actually a ton of notes on it because I think it's really hard to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what I mean on, on a few levels. One, being vulnerable in general is just difficult. And it's so interesting that this topic of vulnerability is something that came through in your research in the book, because um, it's actually something that's come through in our research. We did a survey with almost 600 employees and managers this past fall, asking them what they believed was the number one most effective way to build trust in an organization. And they actually said it was showing vulnerability. So just doing that in general, it's powerful, but it's hard, especially if you're not naturally predisposed to it, especially if you don't emote, especially if weakness is a potential uh, undesired ramification that you project in, in being too vulnerable. So one, that's just hard. And then two, okay, now you're saying I have to be selectively vulnerable. I have to know in what situations, in what context, to what extent, timing, right? I agree. I'm curious for folks listening, what, I mean, what advice would you say, Molly, from the research or from different leaders that you've talked to or from your own experience? Like, how do you draw that line? Like, how do you know? How do you know when to be selectively vulnerable? Yeah, yeah. So it's a great question. Yeah, to make it sound to obviously it's not, a, not for me either in uh, my for work no life. 
Yeah. But the decision shouldn't happen, like, if you're sitting there and then you decide, okay, I'm going to be selectively vulnerable in this moment. It probably is going to take a little more time and thought before you do that. So when you're feeling emotions, the best leaders are able to hit a pause button and say, instead of immediately sharing, either being totally vulnerable, selectively vulnerable, saying, what am I feeling and what's the need behind that emotion? So you might be feeling, suddenly you're like just so annoyed with the team. And you might be able to then take a step back and figure out in the next hours or come back the next day and say, okay, why am I feeling annoyed? I'm feeling annoyed because I have anxiety about us meeting our deadline for this client. And the team isn't working in the way that I would want them to meet the deadline. So you come back and say, here's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling anxious about getting to meet deadlines. I personally am somebody where the closer the deadline comes, the more stress I get. And so what can we do to put in place so we can get the work done on time? The other thing is, I think, understanding that it's okay to have emotions and negative emotions as a box. So, so often we think we're only allowed to share positive emotions, but totally okay to have a bad day as a box. So we talked about in the book, we spoke with Kim Scott and wrote the book Round Candor, mm-hmm. which I love. And she said, you know, it's okay to say to your team, I'm having a bad day. The reason I'm sharing this with you is that it has nothing to do with you, but I don't want to make your days worse by bad day. So I'm sharing this emotion so that I'm being fully transparent so that I'm not going to uh, have these emotions go viral towards you. Absolutely. I think it's, it almost sounds like, and you touch on this in the book, that it's a mixture of self-awareness, first and foremost. So knowing oh, I am actually having a bad day. Like there's something that's non-work-related or maybe work-related that's causing me to, to feel anxiety or to, to just feel off through that self-awareness. And then two is the self-reflection. Uh, one thing I love that you talked about in the book is this idea of emotional fluency and this idea to sort of see the landscape of how you're feeling and then the capacity to productively channel that in a way that is healthy. And I, and I love that concept. So it's just, it's it's... Not denying the fact that um, you're feeling a certain way, not overcompensating, but this mixture of both uh, awareness and and reflection. So I think, yeah, thank you so much for for sharing that, Molly. Uh, One other thing that I was curious about is you talk a lot about, in the book, this idea of creating psychological safety as a leader, right? So on one hand, you have to be vulnerable and selectively vulnerable as to not scare people away or overburden them, but then also to help other people in a team feel uh, vulnerable as well. And psychological safety, you know, it's a term coined by Amy Edmondson, and it's something that's gained a lot of traction and popularity in, um, in the past few years. And, and you know, it's something with Know Your Team, obviously, we, we work really hard with, with our software and with our workshops to teach leaders this. But I, I want to talk about it in the context of, of emotion. Why is it important to help employees feel this way? Yeah, it's such a great concept. Um, and... I, we had heard about it. Google did the study around it. Um, it was back in 2012, and it came up in the context of emotions because it's really what psychological safety is at its core is a feeling. It's an emotion, mm-hmm. which is that I feel safe when I suggest ideas or I admit mistakes or I take risks, and I'm, I'm not fearful of being embarrassed by the group. And so a lot of times one of the the emotions that can actually be so detrimental to teams is fear. When you're not feeling safe and you are feeling fear, you're not going to share all of your ideas and 
you're not going to bring everything you have to that team. So the study was, I think it said that people who don't have psychological safety more likely to leave their jobs, so higher turnover, they bring in less revenue, they're, they're not as effective. And so this emotion is actually really, like, it goes deep. Like, fear is, like, one of the most base, primal emotions that we have. Totally. And it's, the body and the brain just naturally shut down when yes. we are fear. Yeah, so I, you know, it's interesting that you you say how both powerful and prevalent fears in the workplace because one we don't we don't often think I'm scared when I'm at work. Right. Hopefully, most people don't feel that way, uh, but it's so true. We we ask a question through through know your team to thousands of managers, and we ask, is there anything that you're uh, afraid of at work? And the majority of people say yes. I forget the exact percentage, but it's it was uh, more than fifty percent. I believe close to sixty percent say yes. I'm actually scared of of something at work and fear not only does it prevent you from from speaking up but it prevents innovation right it prevents people from taking risks it prevents people from doing what they think is actually in the best interest of customers because they're worried about you know internal repercussions it's uh, even how they treat certain team members because they're scared of how they might be perceived or how might that be reflected outward you did mention some recommendations in the book, but I love, you know, if you don't mind chatting through some of them on how you get rid of that fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, I love that you asked that as a survey question. I've never heard that before. And oh, really? Not yeah. I'm so curious. I mean, we can, we can share it later, but I'm so curious what the common buckets were that people were afraid of. So you can set team agreements. Um, this yes. Is like I love that idea you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that I recommend is how do you want to treat each other? What's some example ones we talk about in the book are so assuming that your team members want to help you and want to collaborate, being present. So a lot of times we can get on our devices and not speak to each other as humans. But taking the time before you start a project or when you're working with a new team to, to create a list of ground rules and you can keep adding to that um, is, is super important. Definitely. Well, as you were writing this book, Molly. I mean, the number of different studies and articles and research and people that you've talked to are a plenty. Was there something that you wish you could have touched more on, maybe particularly in regards to leadership that you found, but for, you know, whether it was editors or length or just time that you weren't able to to delve into? Anything, yeah, you felt like you wish, yeah, folks could hear. Yeah, I'm super interested in workplace culture, and I imagine listeners, uh, reviewers are as well. Um, so there's a lot more that I think I would have loved to cover. We do have a chapter about that, but and you're an organizational designer. I mean, this is sort of your yes. bread and butter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yes. but I think you do a little bit into um, emotion norms, um, yes. and that is something that I think. We don't talk enough about, and I, I wanted to talk more about. So yeah, what are I, emotion norms? Yeah. yeah, go for it. Yeah, so I I had been aware of like cultural norms, and that's you know in an organization, what's it's sort of like the way we do things around here. That's my favorite definition of culture. Yes. It's just like how do things get done? So an emotional culture is uh, how much is it okay to express emotions in this organization, and it really differs by organization. So for example, like on a trading floor. It's totally okay to yell and scream and get angry, whereas in many offices, that's not okay. Uh, if you're a doctor, you learn how to suppress a lot of your emotions because you have to be professional in front of patients if you're delivering bad news. 
Yes. Um, and in any job, it's not going to be okay probably to like sigh really loudly and bang your head on the table during a boring meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, typically. <laughs> so, yeah, just, even if those are the emotions that you're feeling at the right, time. Right, right. Uh, so how do we pick up on these? Is they, they're these emotion ones, which are these small actions that are um, these repeated social signals, and we, we oftentimes pick up on them without realizing it. So if you are complaining to a colleague and gossip is really encouraged and expressing sort of distaste uh, with the organization is really discouraged, and you're complaining to the colleague, that colleague may sort of nod in agreement and, and ask you continue, to continue and share some of her own uh, pieces of negativity or not, and, and you'll get the picture, oh, like, this is a more positive work environment. So there's not one is right or wrong, but in general, we think that organizations that have compassion and gratitude that are displayed as emotions are much healthier. Um, and so most organizations could probably shift towards a little bit more emotional expression. Hmm. Most organizations... Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. So you're saying that just sort of by and large, based on, you know, the research that you're doing, that we as teams skew towards establishing emotional norms intentionally and unintentionally to sort of hold back and that it's actually shown to be better if those sort of warmer emotions are shown of compassion and gratitude. How do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. um, (laughs) In your opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And based off your uh, work. Yeah. Part of it is thinking about what's obviously going to work in your culture. So what I say, you know, may or may may not work in your organization. But I think it's all about communicating that emotions are okay. So we write this example in the book. There's this guy who works for the UK government's digital service. Giles is his name. And he created, he, he wasn't high up in the organization, but he created a poster that's called an It's Okay To poster. And so he put it up and has all these examples of things that it's okay to do. And especially for new people in an organization, you're like, I don't know what's allowed here or not allowed. So some of the things that he said was, it's okay to introduce yourself. It's okay to not know everything. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to uh, have a snack. It's okay to work how you like to work. It's just sort of giving permission for some of these things, which I loved. Another example we talk about is at the Ritz-Carlton, they have this thing called the 10-5 way, which mm-hmm. is where they train their staff to do this. And so you can train your staff to do this. This is obviously in a, um, in a hospitality setting, but sure. even in a larger organization. I've suggested this at my workplace. The rule is if you walk within 10 feet of someone, you need to make eye contact and smile at that person. And if you walk within 5 feet of that person, you need to say hello. But so often in offices, it's like we stop acknowledging other people as human. And so then we're yeah. looking answers for compassion and gratitude. People mm-hmm. are in the hallway. We're not even recognizing them. We're in the kitchen together. We're not saying hello. So I've tried to encourage this in my own workplace, and it seems to be going well. More people are saying hello to me now. <laughs> well, first of all, I find it, and you know, this is maybe both the, the con and pro working at a small company. I'm shocked that people don't say hello in, in an office. I mean, much less to say, you know, when I'm walking around on the street, I, you know, I, I don't know, maybe being, you know, I was born in Georgia and live most of my life in the Midwest. I sort of expect that there's that cordial exchange. But what I really appreciate about what you're describing 
Molly is the specificity to which the behavior, desired behavior that you want to see about emotional expression being determined, discussed, and and codified by a leader. You're saying, write it out. Figure out what are the things you tangibly want to see different. Write out uh, what's actually permissible and okay to do, and when you and, and that action of, of codifying it actually makes it okay. And uh, you know, for better or for worse, be as explicit about people's interactions and, and how uh, emotionally expressive they should be, and just greeting one another. It's almost like, and you know, you are the organizational design expert here, but when you're thinking about you know building your team, designing an organization, it's almost like you're creating um, you know a handbook for a society, right? For a, for a country, it's like how do you greet one another? How do you show gratitude and compassion? Like to what extent? And you actually talked about this. Um, there's you know a great book. I forget who wrote it, but oh, Aaron Meyer who who did the culture map, right? And, and talking about how you know different countries have obviously different modes of of cultural expression. You talk to an American who says something is fine. And you know that doesn't mean it's fine. You talk to a German who says it's fine, and that definitely means that they're fine. So, you know, you take that cultural context and you think about that even in teams and how we need to be as explicit, perhaps, about what is okay, what is not, and to what degree of emotion we can share. Yes, I love you. I said it's one of my favorite books, The Culture Map by Aaron Meyer. And so often we think, oh, it's just between countries. But I mean, working at one place, moving to another organization, can feel like going to a different country sometimes. We have such different emotional and cultural norms in each organization. And then within organizations, we are working with people who come from lots of different cultures and have really different backgrounds. And so the emotional norms that they're used to are grew up with or bring to the organization may or may not be the same. And so it's not that we all need to conform, but just, I think, as you said it, like leaders very much set the tone. And so if you feel strongly that you want your employees to, to display compassion and gratitude and sometimes frustration, if they're feeling that, um, just being really open about that and, and doing it yourself, but also, as you said, codifying, like, just being really explicit that that's okay here, because a lot of times your employees may not assume that it is. Definitely. Wow. Well, I, I feel like I could keep talking to you for hours, Molly, but I guess for last parting question here, for leaders who have always struggled with emotions. Maybe they're an under-emoter, maybe they've gotten feedback that they flip out too much, right? And they're on the other side of the the spectrum. What advice would you have for them in either thinking about their emotions, framing their emotions, uh, improving on that spectrum of sort of that inner life (laughs) as a manager? Yeah, for for the over-emoters, you said? Both. Just folks who struggle with emotions. and Because I think it's on sort of every part of the spectrum. Yeah. First of all, just knowing that it's going to be a constant struggle. It's never going to be something that um, I think you'll have to stop thinking about. Like, suddenly you'll just get it. Something that you can definitely get better with practice. Finding people who you trust to give you feedback on, like, if you are more of an under or more of an older, so getting a sense of that, like, figuring yourself out first, making time to prioritize yourself. So if you're a manager or a leader, you can't be an emotionally healthy person if you're not taking the time to deal with your own emotions. So figuring that sort of thing out. And then I think... Finding somebody who maybe is outside of the organization, a mentor, a peer, a coach, 
to practice with, if you're going to have to have an emotional conversation or make an emotional announcement or share something like that, it's super helpful to be able to just say, like, here's what I'm planning on saying. Let me talk this through with you. How would you respond? What am I missing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something that we don't often, you know, we think we should be able to figure it out alone, but I will often either do that with my husband or somebody who I don't work with, or I'll, I'll write it down. Like, if I'm going to have a difficult conversation or need to share some emotions, I will, like, write it down in my notes document and sort of figure it out first. It helps me think about how to frame the emotions, the need behind the emotions, and mm. what am I really trying to get out of this conversation? Right. Or what message am I trying to lead with? Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, I feel like our conversations coming back full circle. Of, it, it comes back to that, that, I mean, acute self-awareness, because that just, that requires a lot of willingness to confront the things that don't always feel good, the things that you don't always like to hear, uh, your deficiencies, your unintended ways you come across to people. So it requires a very courageous amount of looking at yourself in the mirror, flaws and all, warts and all. And then it requires the discipline to set aside the time to analyze it, to get other opinions, to to write it out. I think that that advice is so valuable. It's something that I actually try as much as I can to practice personally because uh, you can't improve your thinking and your processes as a manager without taking a step back to look at it and, and writing it down helps give you that, that perspective to see and to understand how it can be better. So thank you so much for, for sharing that advice. Thank you. Yeah. For, for all the, the wisdom you've shared and for writing this fantastic book. It's been out for, for I think just a month and already gotten rave reviews on Amazon and folks like Susan Kane. And I, yeah, I've enjoyed it. And I know that uh, Molly, you and Liz also have a really fun Instagram with some really cool illustration that Liz puts out every other day and a great newsletter as well. So if anybody wants to check that out, you definitely should. So Molly, thank you so much again for being here. Thank you for having me. Great conversation. Thank you.